I'm going to be reading from the New English Bible, but if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it is on page 752. This is the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. A report now reached the Pharisees. Jesus is winning and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was only the disciples who were baptizing and not Jesus himself. When Jesus learned this, he left Judea and set out once more for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, and on his way came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of ground which Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and the spring called Jacob's Well. It was about noon, and Jesus, tired after his journey, sat down by the well. The disciples had gone away to the town to buy food. Meanwhile, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said, What? You are a Jew. You're asking a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans, it should be noted, do not use vessels in common. Jesus answered her, If only you knew what God gives and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have no bucket, and this well is deep. How can you give me living water? Are you a greater man than Jacob, our ancestor, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, he and his sons and his cattle too? Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water shall be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I shall give him will never suffer thirst any more. The water that I shall give him will be an inner spring, always welling up for eternal life. Sir, said the woman, give me that water, and then I shall not be thirsty nor have to come all this way to draw water. Jesus replied, Go home, call your husband and come back. She answered, I have no husband. You are right, said Jesus, in saying that you have no husband, for although you have had five husbands, the man with whom you are living now is not your husband. You told me the truth there. Sir, she replied, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the temple where God should be worshipped is in Jerusalem. Believe me, said Jesus, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship without knowing what you worship, while we worship what we know. It is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time approaches, indeed it is already here, when those who are real worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Such are the worshipers whom the Father wants. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman answered, I know that the Messiah, that is Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said, I am he, I who am speaking to you now. At that moment, the disciples returned and were astonished to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said, What do you want? Or why are you talking to her? The woman put down her water jar and went away to the town, where she said to the people, 
Come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, have something to eat. But he said, I have food to eat of which you know nothing. At this, the disciples said to one another, Can someone have brought him food? But Jesus said, It is meat and drink for me to do the will of him who sent me until I have finished his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? But look, I tell you, look round at the fields. They are already white, ripe for harvest. The reaper is drawing his pay and gathering a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. That is how the saying comes true. One sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap a crop for which you have not toiled. Others toiled, and you have come in for the harvest of their toil. Many Samaritans of that town came to believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when these Samaritans had come to him, they pressed him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. Many more became believers because of what they heard from his own lips. They told the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, but we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is in truth the Savior of the world. When the two days were over, he, was, he set out for Galilee, for Jesus himself declared that a prophet is without honor in his own country. On his arrival in Galilee, the Galileans gave him a welcome because they had seen all that he had done at the festival in Jerusalem. They had been at that festival themselves. Once again, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. An officer in the royal service was there, whose son was lying ill at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he came to him and begged him to go down and cure his son, who was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Will none of you ever believe without signs and wonders? The officer pleaded with him, Sir, come down before my boy dies. Then Jesus said, Return home. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said and started for home. When he was on his way down, his servants met him with the news, Your boy is going to live. So he asked them what time it was when he began to recover. They said, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father noted that this was the exact time when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he and all his household became believers. This was now the second sign which Jesus performed after coming down from Judea into Galilee. That's a lot to ask of anybody to read a whole chapter in John. Those are long chapters. My name is Ryan. I'll be your teacher today. Uh, when my children were little, uh, I was doing uh, some fill-in at our church, and uh, we were leaving, uh, getting in the van, and uh, Javin, who was probably four at the time, said, Dad, are you going to do the telling today? And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the telling. 
Uh, and let's start by talking about math. Hooray! Everybody cheers. Um, you're going to have to understand that to understand the way my, my mind works, you're going to have to understand a little bit about math, just a little. Uh, I am, if you didn't know, the treasurer at Kingwood. And at the church business meeting, I told you that I love being the bean counter in this church. Uh, why would somebody want to do that? Well, numbers aren't just things to learn about to me. They matter. Numbers matter to me. Why is that? Well, it's got to be genetic. My dad's a mathematician and a teacher. My sister and I both incorporated a ton of math into our degrees, a couple years each. Um, numbers just feel right to me. On Friday, Angela was doing uh, multivariable algebra to determine what it costs to make a jar full of candy and nuts. That is a really attractive trait, to be able to do multivariable algebra. Um, also, at the meeting, I told you that 16 is the best number in the world. And I told you that at some point, I was going to tell you why it was the best number in the world. I eat 16 chocolate chips at a time. I eat 16 wheat thins at a time. I do 16 calf raises at the gym at a time to burn off my 16 chocolate chips and my 16 wheat thins. It's a comfort to me to do things in sets of 16. And here is why. 16 is the only number for which x to the y power equals y to the x power if x does not equal y and both x and y are positive integers. Okay, what that means is this. 2 to the fourth power equals 4 to the second power equals 16. There are no other numbers that work like that. 3 to the ninth power does not equal 9 to the third power. A billion to the millionth power does not equal a million to the billionth power. There are no other numbers in the entire world that work in this way. And it's, it's interesting because 16 is such an understandable number. The number that works is so small. And so ever since I was a little kid, I was tapping steps 16 times. I was, Angela knows I fidget in sets of 16. It's just something comforting to me to know that this is true of this one thing. Uh, math is elegant in that way. I know, I know some of you are rolling your eyes, but I find beauty in it. Uh, it tell, math tells you how things are in amazing and unique ways, um, and most awful in simple and concise language. The woman in John 4 has this kind of elegance to her. She has a way of telling people how things are, are in simple and concise ways. And I'm going to point that out as we go through the chapter. Last week we talked about Nicodemus. Uh, go ahead and put the slide up. Nicodemus is a man of power, position. He had a well-defined structure to his life based on politics and religion, and he found them too limiting. Uh, and he started asking questions, which integrated, um, in, integrated him into Jesus' entire ministry. Um, he showed up a couple years later defending Jesus for the Pharisees. He showed up a year after that when Jesus had died and gathered him for the, for the burial. Nicodemus broke out of that limitation and became part of Jesus' ministry. Um, it changed him eventually into a public advocate. Uh, this week, we're going to look at uh, the woman Jesus met at Jacob's well in Samaria. Here's the setting. Jesus talked to Nicodemus in Jerusalem. He told him the wind blows where it will. God so loved the world. Lovers of truth look for it in the light. 
uh, things like that. And then Jesus goes into the countryside, and he baptizes people in the Jordan River. John the Baptist says he's the best man, and Jesus is the groom. And then John 4, 1 through 3, the Pharisees heard Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So Pharisees hear that Jesus is gaining a reputation. Jesus is gaining followers. The Pharisees are starting to get jumpy about this, and this causes Jesus to leave. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Who are the Pharisees? Do you remember from last week? They're a political and religious party. It's a Things were more unified in that, in that time. Your religious party was your religious, your political party was your religious party. They were progressive theologically, but also very nationalistic. They believed in ethnic and religious purity. But who's the Pharisee we know? Who's the one guy we know? It's Nicodemus. Um, you think that Nicodemus is worried about Jesus gaining power? You think he's jumpy about Jesus baptizing people? Probably not. It seemed, he seemed to like Jesus. Um, Jesus made him curious about things besides who has power. Nicodemus had gotten beyond this. Um, let me ask you this. Does everybody in your political party know the same things or have the same views about everything? How about in your church? Does, does everybody here have the same knowledge and views about things? No, we don't. Clearly, there are the 7,000 Pharisees that existed in Jerusalem, they don't all have the same intimate knowledge about Jesus that Nicodemus has, and they don't share the same views about what his ministry could mean for them and for the country. Um, well, Jesus leaves. He knows the Pharisees are mm, on edge, and he leaves. Do you think Jesus is afraid of them? Probably not. Do you, uh, why do you suppose he left? Yeah, he had other work to do. He had things to do. Um, He knew that conflict with religious leadership was inevitable. It was going to come. But his message wasn't about the conflict. He had other things to do still, and the message came first, and so Jesus left. Uh, Here's a map of Israel at the time. Go ahead and pop up that slide. Uh, I already did a math lesson. I apologize for now doing geography. Um, But it really matters for the story. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the best map I could find to do this was in a coloring book. Um, Jerusalem, you can see at the south end, uh, near the Dead Sea, and uh, Jesus is in the countryside, probably around Jericho, which is a little bit northeast of there, uh, at a place called Anon. We're not sure where this is, because Anon just means a place with a lot of water. Well, they're next to a river. It could be really anywhere in there, a place with a lot of water. Um, And Jesus has to somehow get from Jericho, or the place around there, to Galilee in the north. And to go through there, he has to go through Samaria. You can see it in the white. Uh, That's a problem for reasons that are going to be clear in a minute. This is John 4, 4 to 6. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, put up the next slide. Um, This is a zoom into Samaria. Uh, Where we are is outside of Sychar, and something you're going to see is that Sychar is not on the map. 
Uh, the reason for this is no one is sure where Sychar is. Uh, it's been 2,000 years and a lot of things have changed. Uh, Shechem sounds a little like Sychar in the original. It could be uh, Shikar or Sychem. Uh, Iskar sounds a little like Sychar, just a couple of letters flipped around. That could happen in 2,000 years. Both have those name similarities. Um, my best guess is uh, Sychar was a smaller town outside of Shechem, uh, probably still in the hill country, because this valley is not very big. Um, it's about from the tip of Mount Ebal to Mount Gerizim. That's about a mile apart. Um, here's the fun part. No one is sure where Sychar is, but there's another geographical location in the story. Do you know what, did you see what it was? Did you notice when I read it? Jacob's Well. No one knows where Sychar is. We lost a city. We still know where the well is. Show the next uh, slide, if you would. Jacob's Well is the only precise geographical location in Jesus' life that everyone agrees on. This is the place we know. Uh, archaeologists all confirm this. Despite all the tours you can take, if you go to Israel Holy Land tours, we don't know for sure where Jesus was born, where he died, where he was buried, which hills were which, which gardens were which, but we know that Jesus stood at this well. This is a, sl a slide of Jacob's well in 1869. You can see there's Samaritans. Samaritans are still there, hanging around. And you can see kind of some rubble in the background and, and surrounding it. Uh, several times in the last 2,000 years, people built churches around the well to protect it or to claim it for their own, one of the two. Um, so they build a church, and then there's a battle. And the church is knocked down, and it just is in a field again. And then they build another church, and there's an earthquake, and the church comes down. And it's just in the field. This is, as you can see, between churches. This is one of the points where it was just exposed to the elements, and people actually used it to get water. Um, in 2007, they finished building another church. Put up the next slide, if you will. Uh, this is in the church of St. Fotini at Bir Yaqub. That's Jacob's Well. It's been cleaned up. You know, you can see it's not dirt and rocks anymore. They built us around, but that's the same place. That's Jacob's well. Um, and you can still, in the rainy season, you can still drink from it. So, Jesus is at Jacob's well. John 4, 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Put up the slide, if you will. Uh, this is uh, a, a painting by Jan... My German is really weak. Grandma insisted on speaking only English. Grandpa had a stroke before he could teach me. My German's terrible. Jan Joost von Kalkar, and the name of this is Christ, Christus und die Samaritanin am Jakobsbrunnen. Pretty close, I think. This is in 1508, and this is a great painting because Jesus seems to be right, but the woman is clearly wearing a Renaissance dress and headgear, and so it's clearly not, not correct. Um, so obviously wrong. Uh, John 4, 8, it says, uh, I'll read John 9, act, uh, the number 9. Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There is a lot in this verse. First of all, Remember that I said Jacob's well is now inside the church of St. Fotini? The woman is Fotini, or Fotine. 
Um, that's not her real name. We don't know what her real name was. But over time, the Eastern Orthodox Church started calling her Photine, which means the light. Um, photon, the particle of light, Photine. Uh, that's what they call her. Um, remember what Jesus told Nicodemus about seekers of the truth? Where do they look for it? In the light, Photine. Uh, that's where the name comes from. It's not biblical, but I think it's still it's interesting the things that people add in it over time. It's still pretty cool. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Um, maybe you didn't notice this, but this fits right into the way my mind works. Um, when this woman talks, she is elegant in the same way that math is. It's a simple description of what is true. Here are the facts. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. And from this, we start building our picture of who this person was. In the original, it says, I am a woman of Samaria. So let's deal with being a woman first. Put up the next slide. Woman, Greek, uh, is gune. Uh, you might have heard of misogyny. It's a terrible example, but hatred of women. Gene, gun, gune, it's the same, same root. Uh, if you're familiar with the relationship between men and women in the Middle East today, in many countries, men and women do not even speak in public. Uh, sometimes it's just considered rude. Sometimes it's because it's illegal, depending on the country and the customs there. And I don't know if you knew this, but veils for women were not invented by Muslim hardliners. Put up the slide. Uh, in Israel at this time, this woman was probably veiled. That was culturally appropriate. She was probably, this is not a photo of her, but something like this. She was veiled as she was going to fetch water at the well. There's a barrier between them. And something interesting, as a side note, when something is veiled in the Bible, every time something is veiled, it's not because the thing inside stinks or because it's being protected for something. The thing inside is being veiled to protect people outside because the power inside the veil is so strong. The Holy of Holies, God when he met Moses, the thing that's veiled is so powerful, the things outside have to be protected from it. Put up the next slide. She's a woman of Samaria. Uh, the Greek is Samaritus. My Greek's not great either. If you don't know the story, in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern part of Israel, including Samaria, and they took out most of the Jewish people. This is their habit so as to maintain control over their conquered peoples. They took most of the Jews out of Samaria and brought in other captured people. It's not exactly clear who, probably some Babylonians. Uh, these new immigrants met and had children with the Jews who were left over, and we got our Samaritans. That's where they came from. So the Samaritans still live in Samaria, and uh, they've done genetic testing, and they are actually closely related to the Jews. This is demonstrable in their genes. More closely related to them than to their Palestinian neighbors. Um, it fits the story. In 605 BC, the Jews in Jerusalem were captured and taken to Babylon. In 536 BC, the Jews from the southern part of Israel were returned from their exile in Babylon, and here they all are together. Can you put up the slide? Has everybody here been to Crater Lake? Most of you probably have. It's one of the greatest things about Oregon. Um, there's a snake that lives around the rim of Crater Lake. It's called the Finch's Garter Snake. And 
At some points, the water in Crater Lake drops low enough that snakes can swim across that little strait in between the shore and Wizard Island, which is just off the shore there. It's a second volcano inside the caldera. There's the big caldera and then a little bitty volcano in the middle. Snakes can swim across when the water's low enough. And then the water fills up and the snakes on the island are trapped. At some point in the past, some snakes got across. And I don't know, you can't see that well, but most of Wizard Island is rock. There's a little bit of greenery, but it's mostly rock. Snakes with very bright stripes on them were easy to spot for predators. And so the, they got picked off more easily than the ones with dim stripes. And so the ones with dim stripes maintained life there, mated with each other. Their progeny who had bright stripes were picked off, and the dim stripes got dimmer. And the bright stripes got picked off, and the dim stripes got dimmer, until the finches' garter snakes on the island are black with no stripes. Now once in a while, the water will drop again, and striped snakes from the shore will swim over to the island. And so there's this mix of striped snakes and black snakes. Same species, but some are black and some are striped. This is called allopatric speciation. There is not going to be a test. Allopatric means different fatherlands. There's a far fatherland of the shore, snakes with stripes. A fatherland of the island, no stripes. Two things that used to be the same were isolated by time and location and then brought back together. And that's what we've got in Samaria. By the time Jews got back to Jerusalem near the Samaritans, their cultures had diverged. The traditions had diverged. Even their versions of the Bible had diverged. Each group thought they were the true people of God. We are the real snakes on this island. That's the argument. When two different cultures live near each other and each claim to own God, how does that usually work out? It, it is usually pretty poor. By the time Jesus came, Samaritan was a swear word in Jerusalem. They considered Samaritans pagans. They were untouchables. Uh, the fight between Samaritans and Jews was a political and cultural battle over who belonged in the country and who didn't belong in the country. And I wonder what it's like to live with a debate like that. Who belongs and who doesn't. You are a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman. Put up the next slide. This is a painting by Paolo Veronese called The Samaritan Woman at the Well, 1585. John 4.10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's Jesus with his cryptic answers again. Remember when he was being vague and very metaphorical with Nicodemus, he's doing this again with the woman at the well. Um, it sounds like the, you're going to be born twice and wind is going all over the place and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It's not really an answer to her question. Um, John 11 and 12 is her response. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who, gives us the, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Two questions she asked him. The first one seems practical. This well is deep. How are you going to get me anything? And Jacob's well is 135 feet deep. And imagine digging that 4,000 years ago. 135 feet down and only 8 feet across. 
That's treacherous. But they did it. The second question suggests that she has more going on in her mind than water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's a very strange thing to ask. We are two or three sentences into a conversation, and she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? What a weird thing to ask somebody when they're just thirsty. What she's doing here is claiming Jacob. When she says, our father Jacob, she's not saying, are you greater than you're in my father? She says, are you greater than our father? You know, ours, mine, the Samaritan's father Jacob. The Samaritans claimed to be Jacob's true heirs, and they had his well. So they had a good argument. Jacob's our father. Look, this is our well. She has her political and cultural walls up. She also seems to sense that this is more than about a drink in a jar. It's about more than just this man's thirsty and I've got a jar that I may or may not let him use. And she's right. Jesus explains that he's talking about living water, a spiritual resource. This is... He says, I will give them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says... Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And from this, we can see that Fotine is thinking in more than terms of physical water. This is no longer, you know, about that. That would fix the conversation and they're done. But she says, water isn't, that isn't in this deep well, you mean water that springs out of the ground and I can drink it and I won't have to go so far and ever be thirsty again. Um, women were not generally given education at this point. They got most of their teaching at home just about practical matters, how to keep a house, and also just enough spiritual guidance to keep them in line. That was kind of the structure of their lives. Here, Fotine is engaging in a spiritual, a serious spiritual discussion. There's wordplay in her responses. She knows Jesus is talking about more than just physical water. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. What physical water does that? There is no physical water that does this. She says, give me that water so I will never be thirsty again. She knows this is bigger than just a new spring. Water that never runs out would be miraculous, and she knows that. This is a woman who is underestimated because she is a woman. And that's similar to what happens today in other fundamentalist areas, Jewish, Islamic, Christian, and other. Um, she's picking up on the direction of the conversation more quickly than Nicodemus did. Nicodemus's entire contribution to his conversation with Jesus was questions. This woman is developing a back and forth. She's saying, I understand this. Give me this. I get that. Let's go to there. Um, she was not given enough credit because of who she was. She, and she did it without preparation. Nicodemus went to Jesus. Nicodemus sought him out. This woman just thought she was doing chores. And she shows up and has a back and forth. Give me this water. Verse 16, go call your husband. Verse 17, I have no husband. Put that up. Next slide. I have no husband. Echo u aner. 
Again, this is a simple elegance that she's got to the way she speaks. Um, Simple truths. In three words, she covers her solitude. She reminds Jesus why she should not be having this conversation. And because women got their spiritual training at home, she covers the reason that by all rights, she should not have the depth of insight she does. Um, I have no husband can also be read, I hold no man. Should be in the next slide. That puts a different spin on things. I hold no man. I am all there is. My heritage and my working mind is what I've got here. This is all I'm bringing here to this well. John 4, 17 to 18. I have no husband, she replies. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Is Jesus mocking her? Is he saying, nobody loves you. You stink. Uh, You're a failure. Nobody wants you. Is that the kind of person that Jesus is? From what you know of Jesus, is that the kind of thing that Jesus does to people? Is that how Jesus treats the vulnerable? Jesus knows that in the next two minutes, this woman is going to be the least vulnerable person on the planet. The things he's about to say to her. Put up the next slide, if you will. This is Angelica Kaufman. The painting is uh, Christus und de Samaritan am Brunnen, almost the same as the name in the other one, 1796. I take this as Jesus putting a final pin in, the, in Fotine's need for another resource and the reason he's choosing her to be the recipient. This is a woman who is underestimated. She's a Samaritan, rejected by the majority population in her own homeland. She's a victim of religious displacement. She lacks the resources other people were afforded, and she holds no man. Verse 19 is probably the most perfect use of understatement as a language device in the entire Bible. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. I can see that you are a prophet. In most translations, it's I perceive, I perceive something. I know what is going on here. I know what you're telling me. I'm tracking with what you're saying. I perceive that you are a prophet. And the interplay between them reminds me of uh, Petruchio and Catherine in Taming of the Shrew. Have you ever seen it? The entire play is just banter. Boom, 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 boom. Come, come, you wasp. I faith, you are too angry. If I be waspish, best beware my sting. My remedy then is to pluck it out. I, the fool, can find where it lies. Who knows not where a wasp is where his sting? In his tail, in his tongue. Whose tongue? Yours, if you talk of tails. And so, farewell. It's this back and forth that uh, Petruchio and Catherine have all the time. Greek literature doesn't flow with the banter in the same way Shakespeare does. It's not really something that's in there. But it's that same wit that Jesus and Fotine are having in this conversation. Will you give me a drink? You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. If you knew who it is who asked you, you would ask him. The well is deep. Are you greater than Jacob? The water I give will become a spring. Give me this water so they won't be thirsty. Go call your husband. I have no husband. You are right when you say you have no husband. You have had five husbands. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And so, farewell. It's the same back and forth. Obviously, the weight of the discussion is heavier. <laughs> the, the, the 
content of the story is bigger. And it's not as snarky as Taming of the Shrew, but Jesus is not treating her like she's stupid. Being the Son of God, Jesus knows they're not equals, but he's treating her like one. He's choosing to be her equal. There's a respect for her person in the conversation. Here's where she starts taking out the big theological guns. John 4.20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Remember, over time, the Samaritans and the Jews have diverged religiously. Their versions of the Bible were different. The Jewish Bible had the holy place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the Samaritan Bible had the holy place on Mount Gerizim, as you saw on the map. It's so important to them, in fact, that the Ten Commandments in the Samaritan Bible talk about Gerizim being the holy place. Remember, this is it. In the Ten Commandments, Gerizim is the place. It was so important to them. Um, It's interesting to me that both cultures have a holy place that just coincidentally they live next to. That's pretty convenient. Uh, The Christian Bible we use puts the holy place in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And I could point out that she's mistaken. Samaritans are wrong. They're pagans. They're pigs. And they better convert to the real Bible right now. Let me tell you something shocking about what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't care about the implications of having the right Bible translation. He acknowledges the differences between them, but he tells her his own theology. He does the telling. This is John 4, 21 to 24. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. The salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Does everybody here remember the story of the Sneetches? Dr. Seuss Sneetches? Sneetches are these yellow goose Dr. Seuss creatures. And some of the Sneetches had stars upon stars. Well, what that means is they had stars on their belly. And they felt that they were better than the Sneetches that did not have stars on their belly. Well, one day, a man comes and says, I have a machine that will put stars on yours. Give me your money. And so the Sneetches that did not have stars on their belly paid him money. They went through the machine, and boom, they had stars on their bellies. And now everybody had stars. Well, the Sneetches that originally had stars didn't like that. They preferred being special. The man said, I have another machine. It takes the stars off. Give me your money. They gave him their money. They went through the machine. They had stars off. Now we are the best one. The people, the Sneetches without stars are the best kind. Well, the Sneetches who now had stars didn't like that, so they paid to go through the machine to take the stars off. Uh, up again, down again, in again, out again. Here they go running around and about again. In the end, the man took all their money and took his machines and left. And none of the Sneetches could remember who started with a star and who didn't. Jesus says, do you think God cares which rock you kneel on? Do you think God cares who has stars on their belly? Do you think God cares if you're a girl 
that you're a Samaritan, that your politics don't fit what the Pharisees say they should be, whether you're educated or not, that you've been rejected by men. Follow God like you mean it. And that's what he asks. That's the kind of thing that gets Jesus in trouble. That's the kind of thing that makes him worth your time. You're allowed to be you. You don't have to bow to religious habit. Worship in spirit and truth. And truth is the mountain you build your temple on. John 4, 25 and 26. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is her last piece of verbal elegance. She knows who he is, but she wants him to say it out loud. I know that Messiah is coming. Huh? She wants him to say it out loud. You can see her leaning in, and he says, that's me. The disciples come back. Uh, put up the next slide. This is a slide uh, by Duccio di Buonasegna. Uh, it's Christ and the Samaritan woman. You can see the disciples coming. Uh, this is in, from 1310, this was painted, and it's in a museum in Madrid. You can go see it if you're ever in Madrid. Uh, John made the point of saying that the disciples were shocked to see him, ta them, him talking to her, but none of them said anything. They were surprised, but they didn't say anything. Um, it could be that they're getting used to the idea of him not being as traditional as some people would like. They're like, there he goes. That's just him. Fotine leaves. She goes back to Sychar. She ignores all social convention and her official role in society, and she becomes the first evangelist. Now she's excited. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I think I found him. We don't know why they listened, but they listened. Maybe it's because it's so unusual for a woman to uncork in public like this. Come see this man. And she seems so nuts. Everybody came. We don't know. Jesus gets into an argument about food with his disciples because they always seem to worry about the wrong things. Um, John 4, 35 and 36 um, do you not see, say four months more and then the harvest? I say, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages, even now the, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. The fields are white. Put up the next slide. Here's what Jesus saw. These are modern Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. They're still there. Traditional clothing, especially of the working class, was white. They still wear white on holy days. Um, they still consider themselves keepers of the true religion of Moses. They still effect, are effectively political outcasts because they associate more closely with Palestinians. They speak Arabic. They believe in a two-state solution. They're still political outcasts in their own homeland. Jesus looks out on the empty fields where the people worked because it wasn't harvest time. Then he looks up to the hill town, and here they come. There's your harvest. They beg Jesus to stay, to stay, and he spends two days, and many of the Samaritans believe he's the Messiah. Thanks, Fotine. Here's your applications. First, when Jesus asks for something, expect it to mean something more than the thing itself. 
Jesus asked the woman for water. Did he want water? Maybe. He said he was tired. Maybe he really did want some water. But he realized this woman was out here in the middle of the day by herself, and she needed him way more than he needed a drinking gourd. And water was just his way in. Jesus asked us to gather, to pray, to serve, and to love. Does he ask us to do those things because he needs a favor? He asks us to do those things for our sake. It's for us. He asks us to do things, but really it's for us. It's not for him. In giving, we receive, right? It means more than the thing itself. Number two, Jesus will often leave behind religious leaders and seek the outcast. Look for him there. The woman at the well was an ethnic, cultural, political, social, religious, and sexual throwaway. Jesus thought that was a great place to start. Jesus didn't go find a bright, shiny Christian to break bed with in Samaria. There's nothing wrong with being a bright, shiny Christian, but there weren't any. He found her. If you don't know any throwaways, go find a well to sit by. Make friends with a Muslim. Invite a gay person over to your home for dinner. In America right now, cultural minorities are feeling pretty cast out. Go find them and find them on purpose because Jesus is with them. 2B, second part of this one, look for wisdom in unlikely places from unlikely people. Uh, part of the benefit of knowing outcasts is they each have their own unique brand of suffering, and that means they each have their own unique brand of wisdom. The woman at the well knew about suffering. She also knew what to look for in a protector, and she wasn't shy about hammering it out with him about having the back and forth. I do offertory about once a month here, and here's a little secret. About half the songs I do are written by atheists and agnostics. But they have the language of the faith, usually because they grew up with it. And they still struggle to understand it. They know what the faith is about. They, don't, they can't dedicate themselves to it, but they just go back and forth. Why are things like this? Why? Does God operate in this way? Why are these promises this certain way and it doesn't feel like they're real? Even if they and I have reached opposite conclusions, that struggle speaks to me. That Having to fight to understand God feels more real to my life experience. Even though I believe and they might not, wisdom comes from unlikely people. Number three, be ready to leave things behind. Um, You notice what the woman left behind in the story? Her her jar, her bucket. (laughs) The whole purpose of her daily chores was to go to the well and get water. She met Jesus and she left her jar behind. Sounds like a weird detail to add to the story, but if it's in there, it's important. We're told this happens a lot when people meet Jesus. We're told that Matthew left his tax table. Peter and Andrew left their nets. John and James left their boat and their dad. The blind man threw his his coat away, and Fotine left her jar. So you be ready. Sometimes what we need to to leave behind is bigger than just possessions, but it's worth the struggle. God, thanks a lot for a chance to gather, and thanks a lot for an opportunity to teach. I pray that um, some of it would have been useful and um, that we'll uh, take it forward from here and make it real in our lives. Uh, Be with us as we leave. Amen.